All right. So if you have your Bibles, open them up with me to Matthew chapter 5. And let's pray. Father God, we come before you, Jesus, and we, we thank you, Lord God, for the word of God. And, and Lord, we pray, God, as we um, now, Lord, as we just continue to worship you, Father, in, in the reading and studying of your word, that, God, you would speak. And the Bible says that the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword and that it's able to divide the bone and the marrow. And so, Lord, the word of God is, is sharp and it does its work in each one of our hearts and lives. And God, we just give this to you, Lord, and, and Lord God, it's, it's your church, it's your word, God. And Lord, as we study the Sermon on the Mount and the, these, these famous words of Jesus, it can be intimidating to, to get it right and, and to hear the heart of what you meant, Jesus, when you said these things. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us do that today. And I pray for each one of us as each one of us um, read through the Sermon on the Mount. And um, God, that you would use it to speak to hearts in here, God, um, by your spirit, and that you would change lives in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Hey, as always, I want to encourage you guys in reading your Bible and praying every day. So it's just constant reminder that I give for our church because it really is the key to um, Christian living and Christian growth is that everybody has a regular or steady diet of reading the Word of God. We recommend that you get a 365-day reading plan, and um, it takes 15 minutes a day. And if you'll commit 15 minutes a day, you can read through the entire Bible um, every year. And so we, we believe that, that you guys should be doing that and that it will absolutely bless your life. It'll bless your growth. It'll bless every part of your Christian walk and so necessary. So um, with that, though, uh, when we're teaching, like right now we're in, we're in Matthew and we're in chapter five, six and seven, what's famously called the Sermon on the Mount. These three chapters cover this famous sermon that Jesus preached, um, no doubt, multiple times as he would have had different audiences and different places and recorded for us here in Matthew. But I want you guys um, to read ahead. Another thing we encourage is wherever we are in the Bible, that you read it before you get here. So you should have read chapter five, you know, today. And, and I try to stay a chapter, half a chapter to a chapter a week. But for the next couple of weeks, anyways, if you would be in Matthew five, six and seven, just kind of read through them, go through them and allow God's Holy Spirit to minister to you, speak to you. And then maybe as we go through it as a group, it it kind of makes more sense. And, and, and God is able to, to really grow it in your hearts a little better that way. Um, But that is those reading assignments for Sunday morning. They are in addition to what you're already reading. If you're reading a, uh, if you have some kind of reading plan going. So I have a kind of a a long introduction today that I'm going to shorten. Trust me. Uh, No, I'm going to try. So as we get into the Sermon on the Mount, Basically, you know, it's, it's very difficult. It's very ominous. It's like, you know, like you realize that you, you can't follow it. And the purpose is to destroy your self-pride in, in external things. And basically, in a nutshell, it's to show you that you need Jesus. And when you realize that, that you, you know, basically, if you want to be righteous before God, that you have to follow these things. Can I have a glass of water, please? I don't have a bottle. Are you just, oh no, not in the sink anymore. So, um, last week as we went through the Beatitudes, remember we said that, you know, I never really heard a great sermon on the Beatitudes. I've heard tons of sermons and I'm a sermon junkie. I love sermons, but I've never heard just somebody really kill the Beatitudes. And the reason is because you can't do them. You can't like, if you leave here today when we're done and you say, you know what? That's right. I want to, I want to do this better. I want to do that better. I want to. I want to get better at that. I want to work on this. You're going to be frustrated. 
You're going to struggle. You're going to, you know, trying to do, do, do these things that Jesus is calling us to do in this chapter. And and what we find in in the beauty of the Beatitudes as we get through it is that really the the key of it is, is when we leave frustrated, when we leave thinking, man, how can I, how am I supposed to do these things? And how can I, how can I follow these things? That, that the key of it is, is that you, you just become these things. Like you, the more you seek Jesus, the more that you put Jesus in your life. And the answer as we go through this is not, oh man, this is scary. I got to do this. I got to figure this out. I got to focus on this. But instead, if we focus on Jesus in our life, and that's what we talked about last week, is that we, we focus on being more like Jesus, of knowing Jesus more, of loving Jesus more, of serving Jesus more, then, then we don't have to do, do, do. It's just we are, are, are. You know, when I first became a Christian, I was, uh, I moved to Hemet, California, and I'd been a Christian about six months. I was in kind of bad situation, born and raised in LA, as many of you know, and a, a good friend of mine who would live down the street from me became a Christian about a year before I did, grew up in a Christian home. Really my only kind of, um, influence, Christian influence as a child was this family called the Haver Tate family. Wonderful, wonderful Christian family. And the oldest son was my best friend growing up and they moved when we were like in ninth grade to Hemet. Well, he gave his life, he, he knew the Lord all his life, but he really committed his life to the Lord about a year before I did. And they were praying for me, and they had a, they had a Bible study that was, none beknownst to me, was, was praying for me every Tuesday night. Well, I called Jason, and I told him I gave my life to Jesus, and he wasn't too shocked because, he, he, you know, they'd been praying for me. And he said, why don't you come and live in Hemet and stay with me for a while? And I had to get out, so I, I moved to Hemet, and um, I started, and I got involved with the Haver Tape family. I moved in with them, and they, they put me up, and, and they were involved in a church called, anybody take a wild guess? Calvary Chapel. And just kind of coincidentally or whatever, it was Calvary Chapel. Was kind of, and I'd already been in a Calvary Chapel back home in L.A., and so now I go to and end up in another Calvary Chapel with this family in Hemet. And I was introduced to the concept of reading my Bible every day. And, and I can remember going through that phase as an infant Christian where I, I would read something in the Bible, and I'd go like, like, God already spoke that to my heart. And there it is in the Bible. It's so cool. Like, I knew that already. Like, I was, I was living that already. God's Holy Spirit had already quickened it to me. God's Holy Spirit was already working in my life. And now I'm reading the exact words on the page. And it was so exciting to find all of these places in the Bible where God had already spoken to me about that. And, and the Sermon on the Mount is like that in that God's Holy Spirit places these things on our heart. God's Holy Spirit gives us this attitude we're supposed to be and become. And again, not, not to get it lost, but if, if we focus on the, the becoming or the doing we're going to miss the becoming. And what it is, it's becoming these things. It's becoming a, a person who's filled with the Spirit of God. So a um, couple places I want you guys to look at with me. Now, Jesus, again, he's dressing a big group. But without a doubt, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are there. And as you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the, the spiritual and um, political leaders of Jesus' day. The Pharisees were a group um, and more on the religious side. And the Sadducees were another group, but they didn't, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection and they had different opinions politically. It was like the Democrats and the um, Republicans of, of Jesus's time. But there was no separation between politics and religion. The same body ran the politics and the religion. And there was a group of, of 70 men that were the leaders of um, Israel at the time. They're called the Sanhedrin. It was a group of 70. Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin as a Pharisee who, when he was Saul, and then he goes on and he gets saved. And the, the Sanhedrin was made up of this group of Sadducees and Pharisees, very religious on the outside. 
But, but on the inside, Jesus said they were like, they were like dead man's bones. They were like whitewashed tombs. They were, they were beautiful on the outside of the casket, but on the inside were full of dead man's bones. So Jesus is talking to them. And turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah 29, 13. And in Isaiah 29, 13, the prophet Isaiah is speaking and he says, Therefore, the Lord said, Inasmuch as the people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me and their fear toward me is taught by the commandments of men. I had one of those days and it was, it was in Hemet again. I didn't plan Hemet stories today. They're just kind of coming out, but I may have another one down the road, but, um, I was in Hammett and I was in that, that period of kind of becoming a Christian and growing and for the first time in my life. And, and as you guys know, when I left LA, I had so much baggage and bondage that God was delivering me from, from and changing my life as a 20 year old. Um, and, um, I can remember I, I did something that was sinful, something that was, was struggling through something and something that was, whether it was a week, a month, whatever. And I was, I was going through something and, and I was seeking God and my, my heart was crying out and I wanted God to change my life, but my actions weren't always reflective of that. And I went through a period of struggle before um, I began to have some victory over some of that sin in my life. And I can remember one time I, I was doing that thing and I don't know why I tell this story a lot, but you know, I've just probably over the last 25 years had a couple of cool times where I just went like there, you know, I don't always recommend that. And I tell you guys why, but, um, just be careful what you, what you land in. But, you know, if you're looking for the word from the Lord, you, you know, you want to land in the Psalms, you know, you land in Zechariah, Lamentations, Isaiah. You're like, Oh no, this is going to be scary. The destruction of, you know, Damascus over your life. And so anyways, I end up in Isaiah and, and God, brings me here to this specific verse, 2913. And, and the Holy Spirit speaks to me as, as, as clear as he can through the word of God. And it says, inasmuch as these people draw near to me, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And God said to me, you, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And, and in that moment, my heart broke and God pierced my heart. And, and I, was, I, I was repentant and I was able to break and I was able to ask God to forgive me and God to wash me. And, and that concept was so true that, that it, with my mouth, I was praising God. And with my outside, I was in church on Sunday with my hands raised, but my heart was far from him. And that's the, that's the last place I wanted to be was a heart that was far away from God. And I was so broken by that concept that I said, God, I never want to have that heart. I want to have a heart that's, that's after yours. And I want to be like King David, a man after your own heart. And and, and this sentiment, Jesus repeats it. Um, turn with me, if you will, real quick, back to Matthew. But turn to chapter 15. And Jesus is quoting what I just read to you out of Jeremiah 29, 13. And he's speaking to the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And he says to them, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you. So now Jesus, hundreds of years later, 600 years later, he goes back to that verse in Isaiah 29, 13, and he says that Isaiah was prophesying about the Pharisees and about this situation. And he says, and then he quotes it. I already read it. These people draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And, that, and it says, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And, and so this is the concept that I believe um, helps us understand a little better the Sermon on the Mount. It's, a, it's an outward expression of righteousness with no inward heart of devotion and of connection to God and real love for God. You know, and, and again, Jesus is constantly um, fighting with the Pharisees over this idea. They, they were very um, religious on the outside, 
but no conviction of, of, of real heart of God. Do you remember Jesus said to them, you tithe of your mints and your cumins. Those, those were little um, spices that you would grow in your garden. And they would, they would take them and meticulously count out nine for themselves and one for God. Nine for themselves and one for God. And they would spend meticulous hours and time separating every part of their tithe so that they gave God 10%. They, they would stand on the street corners and they would wait till it was the middle of the busiest part of the day. And they would raise their hands and they would begin to pray out loud. And, and they would, when they would tithe, they would sound a gong and make sure everybody knew as they waved their big offering in the air as they put it in the offering plate. And, and Jesus said to them, you know, you tithe of your mints and cummings, which you should have done. But you neglected the weightier matters of the law, which were love and mercy and grace and, and the Pharisees, again, had this outward expression of righteousness without, without an inward love of God in their lives. And, and without that true relationship, without that true desire for godliness in our lives, we're, we're not going to get the Sermon on the Mount. We're not going to get the heart of Jesus through all of this. And so that was my uh, short intro to where we are today. So, again, now the purpose of, of the law itself is to destroy our self-righteous pride in external things. And basically the point of it is to show you that, again, that you need Jesus. And so, you know, we'll we'll get into some of those things. So let's look at verse um, number 13. It says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lamp stand and give and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So two concepts here first, that you are called to be salt and light. Salt is to flavor, and light is to illuminate. So you as Christians are salt and light. You'll hear us use that term, you know, in Christianese. You're salt and light. But look what Jesus said here about salt and light and what we're supposed to do in verse 13. What's the first two words of verse 13? You are. Let me tell you something, Christians. You are salt. Jesus didn't say, um, I want you to become. I will make you. If you're a born-again believer in, in, in Jesus, this is, a, this is a statement. This is a profound statement that you are already salt. You are already light. But here's what you have to do. The warning, first the, the proclamation that you are salt, you are light. And then second, the kind of the warning and what you do with that. And, and that as a Christian, it's your job to, what does salt do? Everything. Like we, we could spend, you know, a whole study, on just all the properties of salt and what salt does to, to preserve and to, um, to season and to, um, it kills. It does, it goes on and on and on of all the different properties of salt, but we're to season and then light to illuminate. And, and then just that warning that the Jesus said that if the salt loses its flavor, it's not good for nothing, and it should be thrown and trampled underfoot by men. How does salt lose its flavor? Salt is just salt. I heard one pastor say, oh, you know, back in those days, the, the way they mixed the compounds of the salt and the chemicals to create the salt, that it, you know, it had some would, batches would come out, and it wouldn't be salty, and then it was no good. They'd throw it out in the street, and I'm like, I'm not a scientist, but I'm pretty sure salt is salt. I'm pretty sure you get it out of the ground, and whether it's purified or not, salt is salt. 
They, they, find, they found salt in pyramids in Egypt that was 3,500 years old. And guess what happens when they tasted it? It's salty. Salt doesn't lose its flavor. It doesn't, it doesn't over time or anything else. There's only one way that salt loses its saltiness. And what? Nobody? Delusion. Somebody say delusion? If you dilute it. If, you take, if I took salt, if I took a cup of salt and I, and I sprinkled a pretty healthy amount in a cup of salt... And you had to drink it. It's going to be salty. You're going to, oh, that's salty. But if we take that cup of salty water and we pour it into the Tooele Reservoir up here and we mix it in and then you take a glass and you drink it, are you going to taste the salt? No, it's been diluted among the salt. And really for Christians, the only way we're going to lose our saltiness is in dilution when we become like the world. And, and so if you, you know, if you're doing things like the world, when I, again, here's another Hemet story. When I first moved to Hemet, um, I was, I had to get a job and was going to church, but I, I had to find a job. And so I, I, I got a job as a welder. I'd never welded before. And, and so they were going to teach me how to weld, but I got a job working for a company that fixed bleachers in, in high school gymnasiums in the Western eight states. So we did all Western eight states. And then, you know, those old bleachers, like in the high school basketball gym, you know, where you they don't pull out and they're cocked, you know, they, they're rubbing against you. Have you ever seen those? We'd go in, we'd fix them, we'd weld gussets, we'd, we'd motorize them and put them all together. And so I, I did that for about two years. And um, one of the guys that I worked with was kind of crusty old dude. And, uh, you know, at times he was, he was not very nice to me. And I can remember going home and, and Rosalind, who was Jason's mom, who was kind of a spiritual mentor for me at the time, the one who had taken me in. Um, in a place in my life when I needed a Christian family to love me and help me. And I, I went home and I told Rosalind, I said, I had enough of this dude. I'm going to work tomorrow. I'm going to pound him. And I was serious, you know, and who knows what would have happened, but I still had a chip on my shoulder. And, 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 and she said, if you do that, she said, and these words stick with me to this day. She said, you'll lose your witness. So I went to work the next day and I restrained and, and, and I didn't want to lose my witness. I, had I gone to work the next day and gotten a fist fight with this guy, not only would I have then, what am I going to do? You know, the next day I'd take him out to lunch. Let me tell you how much Jesus loves you. And, you know, and like you lose your witness, right? Like I, I, at that point, I would have lost my ability to represent Jesus in our shop among the others. Not only would I have lost my witness among this guy, but I would have lost my witness in the shop. And, and those, those words of wisdom she gave me were so true, you'll lose your witness. And that, that's how salt loses its you know, um, maybe some of you have, you know, you're known as a Christian in your job and then comes the annual Christmas party and they're serving drinks at your annual Christmas party. And, you know, you don't just have one drink. You get drunk and sloppy at the annual Christmas party. Guess what happened? You what? As Rosalind said, you lost your witness. You lost your witness. And, you know, you're drunk on Friday night at your Christmas party. And on Monday, you're telling people how to walk with Jesus and what a glowing example you are. You know, you, you, if you act like the world and you do the things that the world does, you lose your witness. And, and that's the saltiness that Jesus is talking about. And the only way it's going to happen is in saturation again and in, 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 you know, dilution as we become like the world. And then the second example that he, he gives is the same idea is that we're to be a light set on a hill and that it shouldn't be hidden. Now, th- there's a concept in Christianity that I think this other concept and this one here that Jesus teaches about us being light and letting our light shine, the two get mixed. You know, again, Jesus said, when you pray, when you fast, when you give, he said, when you pray, don't, don't go as the, as the Pharisees do on the corner and announce it. He said, go in your room where nobody sees you, close the door 
and there pray, and your Father in heaven will see you and reward you. He said, when you give, give secretly. Don't even let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, and your Father who sees you will reward you. He said, when you fast, don't disfigure your face and go, oh, I'm fasting. He said, anoint your head with oil and wash your face and don't appear to men to be fasting. And your father who sees you in heaven will reward you openly. And and we know that as Christians, right, we're not supposed to have pride. We're not supposed to be prideful people full of arrogant pride. The very sin of pride is the sin that, that casts Satan from hell. It's the, you know, you're never more like Satan than when you have that pride that wants to touch God's glory. So because we understand as Christians we're not to have pride, we're supposed to do things secretly, we come to a place where he says, let your light so shine. And, and what Christians do, unfortunately, is, is they develop this false sense of humility. You ever run into a Christian like that? Oh, pastor, that was a really good sermon today. Was it me? It was the Lord. God gets all the credit. I didn't do nothing. Shut up. Like, can't you just say thank you? Like, it's not full of pride. And I just thank you. Appreciate it. No, if I said, yeah, I know. I'm pretty good, ain't I? You know, like, it's different, right? But I can humbly, I can stay humble. And I can say thank you. Compliment me without being full of pride. But unfortunately, we, we get this false humility that runs in so many Christian circles. that just comes up that's, that's just as bad as the pride itself. But listen, in this concept here, Jesus said, let your light so shine before men. And and really, you know, one of the things that Jesus did, and of course he was God, right? But one of the things that Jesus did so masterfully, better than anything, one of the things that, that makes Jesus so amazing was Jesus abided by this verse better than anybody in history. In verse number 16, it says, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. Nobody was better than that at Jesus. Jesus raised dead people and and deferred the glory to God. Jesus walked on water and people looked at his acts and gave God glory. And and that's the example that that God set. So we don't have to have a false humility and pretend. Let it shine. If you're doing something good for God, if you're, you know, you want to shine for people. You want people you work with. You want people you live with. You want people that are in your extended family to see good works in your life. It says when they see, Jesus said, when they see your good works, assuming that they're going to see your good works. So you don't have to hide them all the time. You just have to have that craft and that skill that Jesus had that when people see your good works, that, that, that God receives the glory for it. And that's the gift and the skill and the craft that just takes, you know, a little bit of honing to, to, so that God receives the glory. And then he goes on, um, or the, you know, the last thing I said, you know, on that is just that, that you are a, a salt and light, right? So if salt loses its flavor, it's no good. And then, um, conversely, if, if you have light, if Lydia came home and let's say she, she bought it some designer lamp somewhere, is there such thing? You probably could find one like a Tiffany lamp, you know, spend a couple grand on it. You know, well, look at this lamp I bought. I said, oh, yeah, nice. And if I come home, I was like, where's that beautiful lamp you bought? She says, oh, it's under the bed. I got to check her head for lumps, right? Like you bumped your head. What's wrong with you? You don't take a light and put it under the bed. And that's the concept that, that Jesus shares is that you, you as Christians don't hide your light. Let your light shine and don't be afraid to let it shine. Let it shine in such a way that your father receives the glory. Amen. Verse 17 says, 
Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And now 17, we kind of change gears a little bit. And then we're going to change gears again in 21. But Jesus said, um, for surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until it is fulfilled. Whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So I'm going to come back to verse number 20, because that's obviously the highlight. But again, this is Jesus talking about Christ fulfills the law. So, you know, we, we already taught through Galatians. We already taught through Romans. Okay. Paul is mad in Galatians. He's had enough gloves are off. And he even says in there that I wish those that were teaching those other things that they would be damned to. That's Paul. Like he's pretty mad by the time he's wishing people were damned all the way to hell. And, 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 and so he, he's, he's upset about those that are teaching the law um, and that people have to follow the law. Romans, the same thing, all the way through Romans. And like I said, we've already been through them both. But basically, in summary here, because it's dealt with here in Matthew, Jesus said he fulfills the law. Five times in the New Testament, we have verses that were not under the law. But what, what comes up, I'm going to share a couple with you guys. Um, what comes up, though, is then what part of the Old Testament do we follow? What about Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and, and all of these Old Testament books? And some folks mistakenly might say something to you like, oh, well, that's Old Testament. We don't have to follow that anymore. We don't have to do that anymore. I, I live by the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, my. That's a doozy if someone says that one. Have you read the Sermon on the Mount? Um, but no, we don't have to follow anything in the Old Testament. That's the law. That's, that's, that's not for us today. That, that's not true. You know, on Wednesday nights, we, we labor through the Old Testament. I'll tell you what, it's not always the most exciting Bible studies because there's some of it that we, we just got to get through. But you know what? I think it's so important that I do it. And, and I'm going to continue to do it because of what Jesus said here. Blessed are those, he says right here, you know, that, that those great in the kingdom of heaven that, that teach those things. Why? Because you know what you find in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and the Law of Moses, and all these books in the Old Testament? Thank you, church. Amen. It's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all a foreshadowing of Jesus. Jesus on the road to Emmaus, right? Just post-resurrection, he shows up in his glorified body. He sees those two guys walking down the road. He starts walking with them. They don't know who he is. And he's having a conversation with them. Then finally, they realize that it's resurrected Jesus. And it says that Jesus, beginning at Moses, began to teach them all the things concerning himself. They didn't have a New Testament. Jesus didn't have the New Testament, the Gospels, any of the letters at that point. And he taught himself through the Old Testament. And so those, those, those parts of the Old Testament, we don't throw them out. They're about Jesus. They, they, you know, there's a wisdom in there. Now, it's true that we're not bound by the law of Moses. Now, one thing you have to understand when we talk about the law and the, the, the Jewish law, the codified law. The law of Moses has three parts to it. There's the ceremonial law. And in Israel, there's so many ceremonies, right? You have to sacrifice turtle doves and, and you have to sacrifice um, bulls and you have to do certain things and build altars and so many of the rituals of the temple and so much of the law of Moses covers the ceremonial. That's one. The second part of the law of Moses had to do with their dietary laws. They had so many dietary laws in, um, for, for eating kosher that they follow to this day. John the Baptist, what did he eat? Locusts. So locusts are kosher. But bacon is not. What's wrong with that picture? You can eat locusts, but you can't eat shellfish. No crab. 
No lobster. Thank, thank God for Jesus, right? And the liberation. Now we eat bacon and shellfish and um, we can have cheeseburgers because they can't have meat and dairy products together. But you have in the law of Moses, you have the dietary section. And then the last part, the third part of the law of Moses is the moral section. That would be like the Ten Commandments. That would be where we would find like our do's and our don'ts. And so there's different parts of the law of Moses. Now, in, in its entirety, as believers, there's a lot of wisdom that we glean from it. You know what you, again, what you learn, and I already said Jesus, but in that, in the same idea, when you go through and you know and you study the law and you learn those things, you see the heart of God, Genesis to Revelation. You know, I often remind people that the law came 450 years after grace. The law didn't come first. And Paul tells us that reminds us of the New Testament. But the law didn't come till Moses. Abraham had already lived and died and and. Um, and, the, and before the law came, we had grace and mercy and all those same concepts of God loving his people before the law. Okay. So, but the, the parts of the law, we don't follow. It's true. We're not under those anymore. We're, we're fulfilled in Christ. The law says that if you have a rebellious teenager, you take them to the town square and you accuse them of rebellion and you and your neighbors and your friends help you throw stones at them until they die. I would have no teenagers left. <laughs> How about you guys? Yeah, maybe one. I don't know. You guys got sweet girls, you know, but, um, you know, the Bible says that for one week out of the month that your, your wife is to live outside of the house. The law of Moses says, <laughs> Lydia likes that one. She's like, you can follow that one. I love it. I want chocolates and I want a nice place to stay for a week. But yeah, we're not, we're not bound by the, those parts of the law. That is true because we're set free from that. And again, so we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But what, what Jesus is saying, again, here in multiple places, is you don't live by the law. Now, here's what you have to understand as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. You don't want to live by the law. Because the standard of the law is perfection. Jesus is going to say here now, he said, if you want to live by the law, then you have to be perfect. Because basically, it's, it's your salvation. How you get into heaven and hell. So your righteousness, if you want to be made righteous based on your observance to the law, you're in big trouble is basically the point. And some people do. Some people, again, they're, they're very proud of the fact that they don't smoke and chew and hang out with girls who do. And, you know, and they're more righteous because they don't have a television or they don't watch, you know, American Idol or something, you know, and never mind. It's pretty good this season, by the way. And they, they, uh, you know, that, that this is outward appearance of, of righteousness, but you don't, you can't live your life. You don't want to live your life that way. And, and it's impossible to, to be made more righteous than, than the Lord. And I know what I was going to say, and, I gotta, and then we'll move on. But so the Bible teaches that your righteousness is like garments. So for example, if, if God is going to base, base you, whether you're going to go to heaven or hell, when you show up on judgment day, it's based on what you're wearing. And, 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 and what God is going to give those that are righteous is a beautiful white flowing robe that's white as snow. And because it's white as snow, it's flawless, it's perfection, it's, you, you know, you go to heaven. And what the Bible says is that if you want to stand before God on that day based on your own righteousness, based on the righteousness of Moses, the best that man can do is what? Filthy rags. And I know some people don't like this, but this is, I didn't write it. God wrote it. I, I don't write the news. I just read it. Okay. But the, literally the Bible says that you're, the best that you can do in your righteousness is as menstrual rags. So you take used menstrual rags and you try to make a dress with them. And then you do your best and you show up to God and it's like, okay, how do I look? 
He's like, gross, you know? And good thing that we, we don't have to appear that way based on the law, that God has given you and imputed to you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So now when you stand before God, you're not coming to God based on because you're good, because you deserve it. You're coming to God based on grace that you don't deserve it. You needed a savior and that, and that God filled your life with his Holy Spirit and, and, and Jesus died on a cross. And now when God sees you, he sees his son and he sees you in this beautiful white robe that's, that's made righteous in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so, so Christ fulfilled the law. Hey, just write them down. I'm not going to read them. You guys are running out of time. But um, write down Romans 3, 19 and 20. Actually, that one I have to read. It says, and now we know that, that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth should be stopped. So what does it do to every mouth? Every mouth should be what? And all the world may be guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for the law is knowledge of sin. So that's Romans three nineteen and 20. And then the other one is in Galatians chapter 3. And in Galatians chapter 3, in verse 13, it says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And then down at the end of the verse in 20, chapter in 24, and 20, verses 24 and 25, he says, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith come, we are no longer under a tutor. So no longer under the law of Moses and 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 uh fulfilled in Christ. And then the last one, or verse 20, I said, I'd come back to that. J. Vernon McGee says that the law is a mirror. It was intended to show you that you need a savior. And um, that's why Paul says it's a schoolmaster. And then he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now for you or you and I to hear that statement, it doesn't shock us. It doesn't even carry any weight, but understand that if you are there the day Jesus spoke this, the Jews have a saying, they still to this day, if, if there are only two people that make it to heaven, one will be a Sadducee and one will be a Pharisee. And they were held in high regard for their religious um, piety and for their standing. And yet Jesus, then Jesus goes on and tells them that unless your righteousness is better or exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And they must have went, well, then who could go to heaven? Who, then who in the world would ever meet that standard? And that, that's the whole point. Only one. Who meets that standard? Jesus. So you better put Jesus on you. <laughs> you better put Jesus in you. So that's the point that he's making. And then he's going to go on and he's going to talk about um, in the Sermon on the Mount about murder. It begins in the heart. Adultery begins in the heart. Um, he's going to talk about marriage. We'll talk about marriage and divorce quickly. Um, but again, Jesus is taking these external religious, um, opinions and he's applying them to our heart. Some of us might put our chest out and say, well, I'm a good person. I, uh, I've never murdered anybody. I'm a good person. I've never committed adultery. You know, we, we compare ourselves oftentimes in our righteousness. And if we're good people or not, we compare ourselves to folks around us, you know, and as I look at some of you, I feel pretty good about myself, you know, no, I'm just kidding. As you look at me, you should feel good about yourself, but you know, back, back in Hemet, another Hemet story now. When I first got to Hemet, the Roslyn and George Havertape, to this day, they constantly have a revolving door in their house. They're constantly reaching out, loving somebody, bringing somebody in their home, discipling them, raising them up, you know, to, to, 
get them to a place where they can be off on their own serving Jesus. Well, there was another person who was living in the house um, when, I, when I first moved to Hemet, and him and I shared a bedroom. His name is Glenn Hobbs. Glenn Hobbs is seven feet, two inches tall. He's an inch taller than Shaq, and he's, he's a mammoth of a human being. He's from Idaho and uh, loves Jesus, was well, 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 serving the Lord for a long time before I got there. And everywhere we went, Glenn will walk, we walk into a restaurant, the whole restaurant would stare at him and he'd just go, yes, I'm seven foot two, I'm an inch taller than Shaq, and no, I've never played basketball. And then, you know, we go in the grocery store, yes, I'm seven foot two, I'm an inch taller than Shaq, I've never played basketball. Glenn had an amazing testimony too, growing up in Idaho. I've shared it with you guys before, but I can share it to you another time, but not time for today. But, you know, standing next to Glenn, have you ever stood next to a seven footer? Like, you don't realize how big a seven-footer is, like how mammoth of a person this is. The shoulders and the, just the size of this person, you know, his arms look like they're like as long as your whole body and just huge human being. You know, and next to him, I feel very small next to Glenn. Or I could stand next to Gabrielle, my two-year-old that I just stand up here. Now I feel pretty big. Now I feel pretty good about myself. You know, I'm, I'm powerful. I'm stronger than she is. And, and, you know, comparing and our righteousness can be that way. You know, we could compare ourselves to some people and feel small. We can compare ourselves to others and feel big. And that's what we do as people, right? We, we compare ourselves to each other. But the standard that, that God uses is we don't compare ourselves in our righteousness to others. We compare ourselves to Jesus. Do you know why on multiple occasions in the Bible, the men that saw Jesus in different places had an, a, a, a reaction, woe is me? Isaiah, the prophet, as you read through the first part of it, he was constantly saying, woe is you, woe is you, woe is you. And then it says in chapter six, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled glory, filled the house. And I said, woe is me because he saw the Lord and, and, and he compared himself now, not to all these other men, but now to God, he understood woe is me. Peter had the same reaction. When he saw the Lord and he said, I'm unworthy. And, and he, 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 you know, in the boat there. And so verse 21 says, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hell. So, you know, you've said in your heart, you've never murdered anybody. You're innocent, but Jesus brings you to another standard. How many of you guys have ever been angry with somebody? If your hand's not up, how many of you guys have ever told a lie? Okay. So when, when, if you're angry for somebody, Jesus said you've committed murder for them, murdered them in your heart already. Now, Jesus condemns here this anger. And, and, and he, he also, you know, the, the word anger, if you take the word anger and you add a D to it, what does it spell? Danger. Okay, when you're angry, you are in danger of sinning. You are in danger, period. Now, I want to clarify something. What Jesus um, condemns here is unrighteous anger. Now, the Bible says, um, be angry and sin not. That be angry in the Greek preposition is a commandment. You are commanded to be angry at times. How do you feel if you, if you hear of a child who's been molested? Angry, right? How do you feel when the Lakers lose a basketball game? angry, right? Very mad like that. That's a righteous anger and it's okay. You know, that's, that's righteous. Bible says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And so it could say don't have wrath, but it doesn't say don't have wrath. It says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath, assuming that there'll be some wrath in your life. So what's condemned is not anger. It's not wrath. 
What's condemned is unrighteous anger and unrighteous wrath. The same is true of judgment. You know, the world wants to tell you as Christians all the time, oh, you Christians are so judgmental. The Bible says, don't judge me. And then they tattoo it on their neck. Only God can judge me. But they have no concept. You, you, you have to judge. We all judge. And Jesus never condemns judgment. You're not very wise if you don't use judgment in your life. Everybody judges. We all judge on a daily basis different things. What Jesus condemns is unrighteous judgment. And there's a difference. And so here he says there's this unrighteous anger that is murder in the heart. And don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And you're in danger if you feel that way. And he says, therefore, after dealing with anger and danger, he says, therefore, whenever there's a therefore, you got to see what it's there for. It's an application. He says, if you bring your gift to the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way first and reconcile to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And so the Bible says to live peaceably with all men as much as depends upon you. Okay. Depends upon who? You. Okay, so listen, this is not saying that everybody who doesn't like you or everybody who's mad at you or everybody who has a problem with you, you have to go and get it right with them. Like that'd be a full time job for me. Like That's all I would ever do is is going around trying to. And that's not what he's talking about. Now, the key here is he says, when you come to bring your gift to the altar. So what do we do at the altar? What does this mean? Your gift to the altar. This is a time you come to pray. It's a time you come to spend with the Lord and you're bringing a gift to God at the altar. And there, um, as you open up your mind, your heart, and you begin to pray and God begins to speak to you, you remember. And why would you remember this problem you're having with a brother or sister at that time? Because God has put it on your heart. God has reminded you. And so as God speaks to you about a situation with somebody that you know you need to get right, you've done something wrong and you've sinned against them and they know it or there's ought between you and them. Then you go and you Matthew 18 and you go to that person and you work it out. You ask for forgiveness. You get right. You know, it's the same concept. Every, you know what I do in that chair right there during worship before I come up here every Sunday? I'm trying to clear the air between me and God. I don't ever want to get up here where, where, you know, I'm not right before the Lord. And I'm asking for forgiveness for my sins this week and trying to clear the air. And I'm trying to seek God and I want to make a connection with God. And I don't want there to be anything between me and God that would cloud, you know, me speaking and hearing to, from him and him, you know. And same thing in your prayer life, in your life, that you, you clear that air. And God wants you to clear that air. And if there's a problem with a brother or a sister, he wants you to go get it right. You know, Christians love to do this to each other, too. And I don't know why, but, you know, happens to to all of us. But I'll be in the grocery store or something, you know, just a crazy thing. Somebody will come up to me and go, I just want to let you know, Pastor, I forgive you. And I'm like, oh, really? For what? Well, you hurt me real bad. You're a jerk. But I forgive you. And oh, I feel much better now. I'm like, well, I'm glad you do. I don't. <laughs> Thanks for telling me I was a jerk. I don't know what I did to you. Well, I saw you last week and you didn't say hi to me. Did I see you? You know, I don't know what the, or whatever. You said something in the sermon that bothered me, whatever. But it, that, that, that's, that's not what it's talking about here. That's somebody who just wants to come and tell you you're a jerk. And that's the way they do it. Oh, I forgive you for being a jerk. If they had some guts, they'd just come up to you and tell you you're a jerk because that's really what they want to do. So don't be that Christian, you know, I forgive you. And that's not what he's talking about. You know, if, if you have something that's, that's, you know, going on between you and somebody that loves you, somebody that you love, get it right. Get it right before it'll hinder your prayer. Same thing that Peter tells us, men, if things aren't right with your wife, God's not hearing your prayers. 
So if you have problems here with a brother or something going on, get that right and then come pray. And if things aren't right between you and your wife, and you know, don't spend a bunch of time praying because God's, God's not listening according to Peter, okay? He wants you to get it right with your wife and then come back. In verse number 27, he says, And you have heard it said that those of old you should not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in her heart. So again, these are, uh, these are all items, right, guys, that we get puffed up about. You know, oh, I've never committed adultery. I'm proud to say that, you know, my wife and I just got back from Hawaii where we celebrated 20 years of faithful marriage one to another. And it's something that I'm super guarded and super proud of that for 20 years she's been faithful and I've been faithful. And that's a that's a nugget. That's something that we cherish and that we value and that we're going to guard moving forward that, you know, we wish for our kids and for everybody. And that that's a value of, of being faithful to one another. Um, but Jesus said. If you look at a woman lustfully in your heart, you've committed adultery. Well, well, that's a whole nother thing, right? And there's not a man in this room that's not guilty at some point or lots of points in life. You know, and, and, and pornography is plaguing our churches. Pornography is plaguing our nation. You think, oh, it's a worldly problem. It's not. The men in the church have a bigger, bigger problem as the men outside the church. Maybe the men outside the church just don't see it as a problem. It's destroying marriages. It's destroying lives. It's as addictive and as destructive as heroin. It's more addictive than heroin and crack cocaine on, 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 a, on a brain and on a life. Destroys lives and that, that lust and that temptation. And Jesus said, if you look at a woman lustfully, you know, there used to be a saying, right? Oh, you can look, but you can't touch. Garbage, right? That's the worst thing that, you know, that, that's, that's garbage. If you if you you can look but you can't touch and what do you do when you look you lust and you you build that up and then that look is not enough and that leads to more and more trouble and eventually you want to touch or eventually it leads to pornography and and or it leads to adultery and it leads to all kinds of stuff. Jesus said, "Don't look. Don't look because it's 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 going to destroy your life. Why? Because Jesus doesn't want you to enjoy something beautiful. That's not it at all. He 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 created beautiful things, but he, it's going to destroy your life. It's going to lead to problems in your marriage in every area." And more so for men. I'm speaking more to the men than the women, not to say that wouldn't apply to women. And, and, and again, on the lust. I mean, I, I want to, we talk just for a minute. I just got back from Hawaii. I spent a week on the beach in Hawaii. And I saw some things. But, you know, the, the thing is, you're in a grocery store. Or you're on the beach. You're driving in your car. And, and a really pretty woman is coming towards you in the grocery store. A really pretty woman is driving in a car next to you. Like, somebody on the beach is... You know, and I can't believe that, you know, they pay $200 for these bathing suits because there's nothing to them, you know, and it's like, you notice, like you can see that stuff out of the corner of your eyes. I mean, otherwise, you know what the Pharisees did to solve this problem? They were so righteous and holy. They just closed their eyes and kept their head down everywhere they went, literally, and would bump into walls acting stupid to, to pretend to be holy so they weren't lusting. But we can't live that way. And you are going to notice something. You're going to notice a pretty girl on the beach, on a car, in, in, in the thing. The noticing and seeing somebody in a grocery store that's inevitable is not sin. It's what happens after that that's sin. It's the second look. It's the staring. It's the undressing. It's the lusting. It's, it's the thoughts that enter your mind as a man. When you know at that point, oh my gosh, she is really pretty. Okay. And if you could stay here, you're good. But when you're here the rest of the time... Now, now it's, now it's a problem. Now sin has entered your heart and you're in sin. And so, you know, dealing with that, you know, Job said, 
You know, and this, this area is just a real area of struggle for men. And, and women, let me, let me ask you to have a little compassion for your men because sometimes you don't understand it. I'm not excusing the men, please. I'm not. You know, I'm not, I'm not making an excuse for, for men to do that. But I am telling you that it, it's a real struggle for your husband. That's a real area that you can help them, that you can help guard in their lives, that, you know, even intimately and meeting their intimate needs is an area of help in that area and where they're not, you know, having excuse and making excuses that, you know, um, for that. But it's a, it's, it's a real struggle. Job said concerning it, he said, I made a covenant with my eyes that I might not sin against you is what Job said. Do you guys know how old, how long ago Job lived? The first, the first book recorded in, in, in antiquity and history was the book of Job. So that was a problem 5,000 years ago. Men had the same problem we have today. And Job said, oh, Lord, he said, I'm making a covenant with my eyes that I might not sin against you. And I'm sure that covenant doesn't tell us. I'm sure that covenant included that staring, that second look, that glancing back. We, um, and then also, you know, as, as we go on, we'll go on because Jesus is going to deal with it right here in, the, in a minute. So then he says in verse 29, but if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it far from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, you know, I have to say it, that Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin because you're lusting, pluck it out. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Those are very radical terms that Jesus is using to deal with a really radical problem. Now, the, does Jesus want you to pluck your eyes out physically, cut your hands off? Unfortunately, some people have done that. It's not what Jesus meant. It's not his intent for you. Because the problem is if I pluck one of my eyes out, what, what have I got left? Can I lust with one eye? I can still lust with one eye. You know, I knew blind people, knew blind guy, Christian blind guy. And his biggest struggle was lust. He had no eyes. He couldn't see the thoughts of lust in his mind. You know, I was telling the boys this this week, you know, because my boys, they'll say something that's meaner, you know, and then they'll say, oh, I was just kidding. And that's always your way out of saying something, you, you know, that's not nice or something that you, you wish you had back. Oh, I was just kidding. That's not a good excuse because the Bible says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So you, you were, but whatever came out of your mouth, like it was created somewhere already in your life, in your heart to be able to come out of your mouth. The thought came from somewhere, which was your heart. So there's a problem with the heart if it's coming out of the mouth. And it's the same idea with the lust and with the sin. It's really a matter of the heart that we have to deal with. And you could pluck all your eyes out. You could cut all your hands off, but you still have to deal with the heart of lust. And it's got to be repented of. It's got to be forgiven and there needs to be, you know, and if it's, if it's a continued struggle, then with the TV or the computer or the pads or whatever it is, then you got to put some safeguards in your life. You got to get some accountability in your life. There's programs out there. There's, you know, internet safety things, accountability. You'll send your wife an email every, every time you turn on the internet and every page you visit, a detailed email will go to your wife or, you know, there's all kinds of different ways to provide some, some safety and some internet protection for yourself. If you need some accountability in those areas, but put those areas in. But what Jesus is talking about is, is a real radical, um, aggressive way of dealing with sin. And here's a concept that we have to get as Christians. Okay. In the area of sin, what, here's what we do. This is what I, this is the point I want to make. Listen, we sometimes feel like with sin, we want to cut back on it. We want to regulate it. We want to manage the sin in our lives. Yeah, that's sin. And I know God doesn't like it. It's destroying my life, but, and I'm not going to stop. I'm just going to do it a less. 
I'm just going to do it not as often. And it doesn't work. It's a concept where Jesus makes clear here and multiple other places. The Apostle Paul teaches that you have to eradicate it. Jesus said to crucify the flesh. Again, that's a violent death to describe what you're supposed to do with sin in your life. You've got to cut it out. You've got to be radical with it. You've got to smash it. You got, whatever it takes, you've got to be radical with the sin in your life or it's not going to go away. And that's the concept that Jesus is teaching here. And then um, in verse 31, let's unpack marriage and divorce for a minute, you guys, and then maybe we'll call it a day. And it says, furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now, again, we're going to deal with... um, is going to deal with marriage in Matthew 19. So we're going to get there and we're going to be going over this again. But so just to put it in context, I think we have to do that in Jesus's day where he was teaching on this particular day in history um, in Israel, there was again, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the different camps. And even like we have today, we have, you know, Pentecostal and Baptist or whatever different denominations and, you know, a couple different ideas. Well, there was um, the rabbis that were very liberal in the area of divorce. And if you went to that rabbi or pastor would be another term. Say, if you went to the rabbi and you asked him if you were um, justified to get a divorce, he would say that anything, anything that constitutes uncleanliness justifies divorce. So if your wife oversalted your eggs, then she is now unclean and you can divorce her. If you're walking down the street and you see a woman that's more clean than she is, now your wife has just constituted uncleanliness and you can divorce her. So basically very liberal and for any reason. And in order to perform the divorce, you say to your wife three times, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. And it's official. I wonder what those guys did. Like when they're trying to scare their wives, I divorce you, I divorce you. I'll say it. I'll say it. Like you better watch out. <laughs> you better do them dishes. Something. But anyways, the other school of thought was, and the other conservative. And they, they said, no, that, that in order to um, constitute an uncleanliness, it, it has to be sexual immorality. It has to be this, that, and very conservative in their idea. And, and, then, and then in order for it to be a divorce, you had to get an official writ of divorcement. So this is what's going on that Jesus is dealing in context. People are very familiar with the two schools of thought. And Jesus said, again, you've heard, you've heard it said, um, to give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason, except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. So the one out that Jesus gives for divorce is sexual immorality. Now, if you're married in here, let me just give you a little piece of advice. Some of the best advice Lydia and I ever got in our married life. And uh, we were told on day one that divorce is not an option. Murder, maybe, <laughs> but, but not divorce. And, and, and really, we, we kind of held to that. And so when we were fighting, we never would say, well, those things are so bad. Why don't you leave? And, you know, it was such a faux pas in, our, in, our, in our, any fight or anything that we went through in 20 years to say, well, then let's get a divorce. Or then why don't we leave? We'd never go there because divorce was not an option that we were together thick and thin. And, and no matter what, even in bad times, even in hard times, it changed how we fought. It changed how we lived. It changed how we solved things when we had it committed in our lives that divorce was not an option. Now, Jesus said the only thing that he uh, approves a divorce for is sexual immorality. Okay. So he doesn't command it though. 
And I've done a lot of counseling. As you guys know, Lydia and I, one of our fortes is we do marriage counseling. I've done a lot of it over the years. And we have successfully counseled people by a miracle of God, because I'll tell you, it's one of the most hardest things for people to walk through, is um, people who have had sexual immorality and adultery in their relationship and stay together and, and, and continue to be married. Very seldom are they able both to pull it off, but it can happen. And, and if they're willing and they're both wanting to, to reconcile, we, we will counsel them. We'll walk through it with them. We'll help them. And, and we won't automatically say, you know, it doesn't say you have to get a divorce, but you have the right. You have that choice. Okay. But, you know, and as far as divorce goes too, you know, I, I've counseled, um, I, I counseled divorce as a last option and, and, and very seldom because of what Jesus said. Obviously, Jesus says in the Bible says God hates divorce. And, you know, but again, it's practical too. If a woman is physically being beaten or punched or, you know, assaulted, how could anybody in common sense counsel a woman to stay in that relationship? She has every right to leave. She doesn't have to stay there. And some religious folks don't like that. Oh, you pastor, you believe in divorce. I'm like, like, like I believe in Bigfoot or what are we talking about? Like I believe in divorce. Like, why don't you come to my house and I'll beat you up every day and, and see how long you want to stay? Like she doesn't have to stay in that relationship. We had a woman whose husband was addicted to pornography. They were married for seven years. Um, two years went okay. And beginning the third year, um, he stopped coming to bed with her. This lasted for five years where, where they weren't together intimately for the last five years of their marriage. Because he wanted to wait for her to go to bed so he could sit in front of the computer at night. And they went through counseling and they went through stuff and he um, chose his computer. And in that case, we counseled that he's guilty of adultery. And, and though he hasn't physically committed adultery, he's been five years without being intimate with his wife. And he's been adulterous with his computer and through his computer. And, and in that case that, you know, and again, I'm nobody, but that, that our counsel is that you're justified. But, you know, and again, as we go through the idea of divorce, God hates it. Okay. Now, when I, when I, when I teach that, when we teach that God hates divorce and God doesn't allow divorce, except for in these areas, you know, um, people who have been divorced feel guilty. And then Jesus, again, uses strong language here. And he says that if you're divorced and you remarry, you commit adultery. And people ask about that all the time. But listen, God doesn't hate those who have gone through divorce. He hates what divorce does. So this is, this is how divorce works. Lydia and I were married in June of 1998. And, um, at that day you would take two pieces of construction paper and you glue them together and you put them out in the hot sun. What year was Luke born? Four years later in 2002. Yeah. 2002. So I take another piece of construction paper and I glue it on the outside of our marriage. And then Nate comes along a year and a half later and I glue him on and Caleb another year and a half later. And then Gabrielle 25 years later (laughs) and grandpa glues her on the outside and, and we put this out in the hot sun. And now if Lydia and I decide to get a divorce, we have to separate those, those lives. And what happens if I have to separate those papers? Who's going to tear? They're all going to tear. The kids are going to tear. The hearts are going to tear. The lives are going to tear. There's no way to separate those relationships without hurting and tearing. And that's what hurts God's heart. That's what God hates. He hates that process. But again, will God, you know, if somebody who's divorced and remarried, then are they living in sin for the rest of their lives? This is a question because people read this verse and they ask this all the time. To every man and answer is a call in radio program from Calvary Chapel. And most asked question on, on to every man and answer is this question right here. 
do, do, do we, are we living in, in sin? Now, I'm just going to tell you, unequivocally, absolutely not. You are not living in sin. God does not. God forgives. God heals, even if it was a mistake. The language is very strong to, to, to help us understand that divorce is not God's best. That divorce is not God's will. But there's lots of things that are not God's best and God's will. And God still forgives. And God still forgets. Now, I want to illustrate this and then we'll close you guys. But um, Jesus lived the example. They brought him that woman um, who was caught in the very act of adultery. Do you know what the law of Moses said that, that should happen and what they did for a thousand years in Israel? When someone was adulterous? When someone was, was um, having an affair? They stoned them in the streets. The, the, the law of Moses called for, for the death penalty. It's a capital crime in Israel. And so they bring this woman who's caught in the very act of adultery and they lay her at the feet of Jesus and they all have their stones in their hand and they say, Jesus, the law of Moses, she was caught in the very act and the law of Moses says we should stone her. What do you say? And Jesus knelt down, the Bible tells us, and he began to write in the sand and he said, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. And one by one, I'm sure, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I'm assuming, right, that Jesus began to write their own sexual sins in the sand. And one by one, it says from the oldest to the youngest, she's began to knock off. Uh, guys, I got to go. And, and they took off when they were all gone. Jesus looked at the woman and what did he say to her? He said, woman, where are your, where are your accusers? Where are your condemners? And she said, Lord, I have none. And he said, what? Neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. So we have an adulterous relationship. What did Jesus do with this woman? He did what with her? He forgave her, healed her. He, let, he said, go, I love you. Just change today and do better tomorrow. And that's God's heart. You guys, we drive her life out of the windshield, not the rearview mirror. And God's given you a fresh start today, a fresh chance every day to move forward. And whether you have abortion, whether you have, you know, divorce, whether you have whatever you have in your past, God has forgiven it and healed it. If you if you've asked him, if you've made it right. And so we don't have to live in guilt. We don't have to live in condemnation because Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Amen. 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 Let's stand. I like this new format. I can preach a little longer. All right. Hey, we'd like to give you guys an opportunity today. And I'm just going to pray for you. And the magic doesn't happen in the words anyways, you guys. So rather than have you repeat after me today, I'm just going to pray for you. And if, if you need to talk to God as I pray, I, I'll tell you, God can hear us all praying at the same time in this room. So if you just pray in your heart as I pray for you and you need to get your life right with the Lord, maybe you have a, a, a divorce or you have an abortion or maybe you have a pornography problem or maybe you have a sin problem or maybe you have a lust problem or you struggle with something in here today and, and, and God's called you um, by his Holy Spirit um, today to get something in your life right with God and repent of something and ask for forgiveness and maybe you don't know Jesus and you're not sure if you walk out that door today if you're going to heaven or not and you want to you want to get right you want to get saved and you know just say yes to Jesus today as I pray and again there's no magic in, in magical words that you say because because the Bible says God knows what you need before you even ask, before you even voice it. The Holy Spirit, God knows what's going on in your life. So just say yes to Jesus as I pray. Talk to him and whatever it is that's going on in your life, you know, get right with the Lord and allow God to touch and heal you. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for you. Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for each and every person that's in here, Father. Lord, we ask God for your um, amazing blessing in each one of our lives, God. 
Father, I pray, Lord, if there's, if there's men in here who have been struggling with uh, sexual temptations and sins and pornography, God, that today you're, you're calling them to, to, to eradicate it, to put safeguards in their lives, to put accountability blocks in there, to, um, God, to, to minister to their, their wives, I'm sure, who are hurting and devastated by it, Lord, to heal those areas. Lord, if there's divorced people in here, God, that have maybe lived with some guilt, that you, you, you told the woman, go and sin no more, and that you forgave her and loved her and encouraged her to move forward. And Lord, would love to see where that woman's life was in two, three years. I'm sure it was in a wonderful place, God. And Lord, I, I thank you for, um, Lord, just Jesus. And if there's anybody in here who doesn't know Jesus, they're just saying yes to you right now. Come into their life. Be their Lord and Savior. They're saying yes to you, Jesus, that you, you would save them today and they would know leaving here without a doubt that they're a Christian and that they're saved and that it's not based on our righteousness, but on the righteousness of Jesus Christ that's been imputed to us. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.